Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone coming to you from Macquarie University and I'm here today with Jennifer Parks who is an associate professor at Rocky Mountain College and the author of a fascinating new book called The Olympic Games, The Soviet Sports Bureaucracy in the Cold War, Red Sport, Red Tape, out with Lexington Books. Uh, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for coming on. I, I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about how you came to this project. Um, sure. I'll try to be brief about it. Um, I feel like it was kind of the confluence of a lot of things. Um, growing up, I grew up in the 1980s during the height of the, the Second Cold War, um, and I was always very fascinated by um, the Soviet Union. And I also was very excited about watching the Olympics growing up and especially, um, especially by 1986, when the Goodwill Games happened after the boycotts of 80 and 84, finally the U.S. and Soviet athletes squared off. And I was just completely drawn in by that head-to-head competition. Um, academically, I went to a small liberal arts college in Georgia, Oglethorpe University. And my sophomore year, a new professor joined the faculty and he taught Russian history. And I thought, wow, that sounds really fascinating. I'll take that. And so I ended up taking all of his classes. It was um, Alexander Martin, who is still um, a very important scholar in um, Russian history. And then I sort of let that fade a little bit. Um, I took some Russian language, um, but then wasn't really quite sure what to do after I graduated. And then finally, I decided I was done with office work and wanted to go back to graduate school and decided that Russian history is what I wanted to do. Um, And that's when I came into contact with Don Raleigh at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I had been thinking I would do 19th century Russia, but then after a conversation with Don, he said, would you be interested in doing 20th century? And I said, sure, which was the right answer. Um, Because working with Don was really a great way for me to get introduced into the field of Russian history. Um, And also he's a a remarkable mentor and um, advisor. And then it came time for me to decide on a topic and I hadn't really thought about it. And I was like, you know what? I've always liked the Olympics. I've always been fascinated by it. Maybe there's something there. Um, and so it kind of, everything came together and I, I started looking I, at it. I as really a, loved um, from uh, an academic that lens. your history lends the sports world. And I, 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 I w- I'd love to get your thoughts on how important sports were in the USSR kind of generally and how uh, much this is a story about uh, uniquely about Soviet sports and modernization and self-consciousness uh, about their relationship with the West. But this is also a really fascinating story of so- Soviet bureaucracy. Uh, so uh, uh, 
maybe if you can unpack uh, those two things a little bit and how much for you this is a history of sport in the USSR and how much of, for you is this a history of bureaucracy? Well, I'd say it's really, for me, a history of both. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges and also one of the, for me, most interesting parts of the project is trying to bring those things together. Um, and they seem at first kind of counterintuitive because sport is very dynamic. It's very exciting. You have competition and everything is fast paced. And then you think about bureaucracy, especially bureaucracy in the Soviet Union, where they really you know, developed it into an art form all, all on its own, which seems very stagnant, very slow paced, very, you know, frankly boring. Um, but to me, um, that was the part that I thought was really fascinating just to sort of picture all of these guys sitting around at a table um, talking about how they're going to make sure that their athletes um, compete successfully and dominate um, especially dominate the West in competition. Um, and while I came to the topic through sports and my memories of it, um, the reason I started looking at the bureaucracy behind it um, was also kind of a serendipitous um, thing. Um, because I was I was looking for a topic for my master's thesis, and this um, sports journalist in Russia, Axel Vartanyan, had um, published um, a collection of archival documents um, online at Sports Ex- Sport Express, which is a, a a Russian sports newspaper. And so I had all of these documents in front of me, and that gave me something to look at. And they were all pertaining to the Soviet entrance into the Olympics, um, because up until the post-war, um, well, really up until the late 30s, but it was very short lived foray into international sports in the late 30s. Up until that time, they kind of rejected the Olympic Games and international sports as being bourgeois, as being Western, as being capitalist and exploitative. And so they had their sort of rival workers' sports international. Um, But in the late 30s, and then especially after World War II, uh, more and more interest on the Soviet side um, developed in getting out on the international stage and competing head-to-head against the West. Um, Part of it was Stalin's insistence that they catch up and overtake the West. Um, But then as I looked at the documents, it seemed that a lot of the impetus was really coming from the sort of mid-level bureaucrats who were, had some sport background, um, but had come up through the, the Soviet Communist Party education system, um, but it was really from them that they started saying, "Hey, here's a way that we can um, compete, show how excellent our athletes are, show the superiority of the Soviet system um, on the world stage in a very dramatic way." Um, and it took a while for them to really get some of the higher ups, um, especially Stalin, seemed to have very little interest in it at all. Um, but then they eventually sort of talked the leadership around um, and got permission to send a team. And so I think the, the kind of intersection um, really comes from those, from those bureaucrats themselves. They sort of feel themselves part of the sports world and part of this Soviet apparatus. And, and they found a way to bring the two together and, and advance their own goals um, while keeping in with the overall 
um, attitude and goals of the of the Soviet leadership. I I loved your characterization throughout of these bureaucrats because it really um, it 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 flipped for me the way I I viewed Soviet bureaucracy because it it it, it didn't seem state at all. In in fact, instead. When you're talking about Romanov or Vitaly um, Smirnov or Ignatin uh, Novikov, any of these figures that you're, you illustrate, I see them as effective and pragmatic, worldly, professional, and kind of realistic. Um, so throughout, I thought it was just really fascinating. But if we, uh, you're, you were hinting here at kind of the beginnings of of the of the Soviet Olympic movement, and that's in some ways where you're. Um, your history starts. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what kind of obstacles uh, these Soviet sports bureaucrats faced, both their internal obstacles and external obstacles to to gaining entrance into the Olympics. Um, sure. Um, in some ways, their internal and external obstacles um, really hinge upon the same thing. And that's whether or not Soviet athletes who had not been a part of the international sports movement could actually compete and win at the international level, especially at a highly visible venue like the Olympic Games. Um, And that was internally what they had to convince the leadership of. Um, And so they sent numerous reports and studies um, trying to prove that the athletes had, had set good enough records in their speed times or they were at the level that they needed to be in order to compete um, successfully. It seemed like such a high bar. <laughs> they had to, they had to say that they were going to win the Olympics. Exactly. The first time. <laughs> exactly. And they had to do that without the benefit of head to head competition. And so you have this just mustering of as many pieces of information as possible they had the the um they had i mean essentially soviet spies out there looking at the sports achievements of western countries they had the diplomatic offices on board with it gathering information about training methods in the west um anything they could find to figure out where the competition the level that the competition was at and then using their um comparing that to the results of their own athletes um, through their internal competitions, trying to sort of add it all up and prove quantitatively that, yes, they can achieve what they need to achieve. Um, And in the meantime, when they did compete internationally, they, they didn't always win. And that created some doubt amongst the leadership about, well, will they really be successful or is this just going to be a big embarrassment? Of course, the difficulties of convincing their own leadership were one thing, but they also had to convince the IOC that they deserved to participate in the Olympics. And they had some opponents within the IOC too, didn't they? Um, They did indeed. Um, In particular, Avery Brundage, um, who I find a very fascinating character all in his own, this sort of Midwestern pulled himself up by the bootstraps kind of, you know, committed individualist American rah, rah, rah type um, already predisposed against any of the communist countries. Um, his firm belief in the amateur ideal 
of the International Olympic Committee, um, which was very rooted in a sort of classist, elitist sort of conception of sport, whereas true amateurs do sport for the sheer love of it, while anyone who receives pay for for play um, is somehow demeaning the Olympic Games. Um, so that was a challenge because the, the Soviet state-run sports system, I mean, it's just a fact that the state was paying these athletes to train because the state paid for everything. So um, they had to get over that hurdle. Um, also, there's a lot of, I love some of those letters back and forth between Brundage and Sigrid Ekstrom, the um, president of, of the IOC at that point, um, talking about whether whether the Russians would could be part of their club because the IOC was self-perpetuating and they invited new members in um, to become ambassadors of Olympism to their home nations. Um, and they really doubted whether these, these unknown Russians who were communists to boot could, could ever really be a part of their sort of gentleman's club. Um, there's one, that I love. I wish I don't have it. The reference in front of me, but it's something like they sent a letter. They didn't receive a response, and Edstrom is like, "Well, they don't even know that one should write a letter." And so, just that kind of snobbery in the IOC is something they had to overcome as well. So, so they eventually make it into the Olympics, and and when did that happen? And how did they how did they do? Were they successful or embarrassed? They were. They were successful enough. <laughs> um, they, they first competed in 1952 in Helsinki, um, and they came slightly behind the United States in medal count. Um, alongside the medal count, there's this elaborate, unofficial um, point system that the International Olympic Committee is really very much against, but the international media kind of promotes as a way to compare different nations against one another. Um, and so it became this another numbers game, sort of you get so many points for gold medal, so many points for silver and bronze. And somehow Novikov was able to, sorry, Romanov was able to um, add up all the points and convince the leadership that they had tied with the United States in point value. And so everything was fine. <laughs> um, and Malinkov um, told Romanov to go home, relax. Everything's good. Yeah, that quote made me laugh. <laughs> I was just reading, and I could feel the palpable sense of relief <laughs> through the book. Um, so they they compete in this first Olympics, and then things really start to take off for them. It seems um, once Khrushchev comes to power, was he just a bigger sportsman than Stalin, or or? Why why is Khrushchev important in in this story? Um, interestingly enough, I, Khrushchev is not that interested in sports himself. Uh, what he was interested in, though, was um, a couple of things. One, getting past the the repressiveness of the Stalin era and trying to inaugurate um, a sort of new era in the in the Soviet Union, trying to make people's lives better, um, which in turn. Um, developed into his concept of peaceful coexistence with the United States, sort of ratcheting down the tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union um, and turning their competition away from just the arms race to more exchange in terms of culture 
um, and other kinds of development. And I think that's why he became important for the Olympic project, because he was opening up the Soviet Union to a lot of international influence in other realms, um, scientific exchanges, cultural exchanges, um, scientific exchanges. And so sports became another avenue of promoting this um, exchange and peaceful coexistence between East and West. And it's more or less at the same time that the, the, that these bureaucrats that you're following are, are making their way into the IOC. And it seems like, um, that they're really kind of effective at embedding themselves into the, the webbing of the international sports world. I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about um, these first Soviet uh, members of the IOC and how they, how they worked their magic to, to, um, to become fixtures in this bourgeois, aristocratic even, uh, IOC world at the time. Um, yeah, that's one of the um, most exciting parts of the story for me. Um, I particularly became fascinated by Konstantin Andrianov, who was the first Soviet IOC member. Um, and he seemed to very quickly figure out how things actually run in the IOC. Um, and I think that his experience in the Soviet bureaucracy really helped him with that because there's in both systems, there's a lot of subtext and sort of informal ways that things work. Um, and so he learned very quickly that, well, if I want to get certain things passed through the IOC, um, I need to work the back channels and befriend as many other members as possible, find some common ground, find some ways that, that I can help them with their agendas while advancing our Soviet agenda as well. Um, and I think that's exactly the kind of thing that happens in the Soviet Union as well. The different bureaus, um, sort of everything formally goes up to the Politburo of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Um, but outside of that formal chain of command, there's lots of back channels between the different ministries and between the different departments. Um, that is how you really get things done. And so he was able to transfer that kind of savvy into the IOC. Um, while, of course, talking the talk of, of building Olympism, spreading peace and friendship through sport um, and all of that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, he, he and the others are very fascinating to me um, in that sense. I, I saw time and time again, I, this is, I think, a really great uh, explanation, both here and in the book, an explanation of how the IOC really does work in some ways. Um, the, the, again and again, we saw your Soviet bureaucrats using patronage, personal collect connections, their diplomatic skills, uh, even even gifts or bribes, uh, again and again, caviar and, and vodka. You know? Yeah, this, vodka and caviar this, go a long way. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to. And, and the amount of attention these bureaucrats were paying to the use of language that, you know, okay, so maybe we need to speak French or English in order to uh, ingrain ourselves uh, and, and ingratiate ourselves with the IOC. It was, it was very interesting. But they had, even as, they're, even as they seem to be, um, you know, working their magic, building these friendships, they are trying to change the IOC in some pretty important ways, aren't they? Um, yes, absolutely. And you can, I mean, you can look at it from a sort of cynical standpoint that they 
they wanted to build up as much support for for the Soviet Union and the other Eastern Bloc countries in the organization as possible um, and increase the influence of socialist sport countries in the organization. And that's absolutely true. Um, on the other hand, they also were really promoting opening up the organization to newly independent states of Asia and Africa. Um, they were pushing for more sports for women um, they didn't do a whole lot to promote uh, membership of women in the organization, um, which remained really, really male, I think up until the 1980s, I believe. Um, but I think they really, I don't know, it's hard to say. It fit really well with Marxist-Leninist ideology, um, and especially under Khrushchev, this idea of the Soviet Union being a leader of revolution, um, and trying to gain support of newly independent nations and those struggling against imperialism. Um, it fit really well with, you know, Lenin's imperialism as the high, highest stage of capitalism. Um, but on the other hand, it was really quite effective at actually bringing new nations into the movement um, and forcing the IOC to kind of change and move away from that very exclusive gentleman's club into into a much more broadly representative organization. Yeah, it, um, it, it's telling how they were very effective at using the IOC's own, own discourses and language against them. Like, oh, you, you believe in spreading Olympism. Well, let's see. <laughs> you know, it was, um, it was I think, a, a, a powerful rhetorical strategy. Although I, w I was curious... Um, it seemed at times like the USSR and their, their delegates at the IOC were well-received. And, and it even seemed like Brundage came around a little bit to them. Um, but then at the same time, it also there were moments, uh, even during the Khrushchev years, when uh, it felt like the Soviet sport uh, bureaucrats and, and Soviet athletes were getting a little bit of the cold shoulder. They, they weren't able to bring in all of their uh, communist allies into the IOC. They had a lot of trouble getting China to be admitted, it seemed like. But then also Eastern European countries seemed to, especially after 56, seemed really um, uh, negatively disposed at some times to, to Soviet uh, uh, athletes. And I, I wondered if you could unpack a little bit how the Cold War and some of these, these larger... Uh, historical moments are affecting the the Soviet sportocrats' entry into the IOC and then the reception of Soviet athletes kind of in this early period of Soviet Olympism. Yes, there, there are a number of things happening. Um, and a lot of them are happening during those, those early Khrushchev years. Um, and they have to do with a real splintering of the socialist bloc at the time. Um, and I think a lot of it stems back to Khrushchev's de-Stalinization. Um, in 1956, he gave this speech that's become known as the secret speech, where he denounces Stalin um, and all of his crimes. And around the same time, he he's unveils his idea of peaceful coexistence with the West in the Cold War. Um, and that had a couple of influences throughout 
the socialist bloc. Um, in Eastern Europe, there was, um, even before the speech, already uprisings in Eastern Europe. Um, there were strikes in the German Democratic Republic in 1953. And then after the speech in 56, you have the Hungarian Revolution, where um, Hungarians are um, taking to the streets to try to reform or renovate their communist party system, um, move it towards more democracy and more freedom of thought, um, which of course was answered by Soviet tanks. And then that spilled over into the Olympics in the, in the infamous blood in the water, water polo match between the Soviet athletes and the, and the Hungarian team. Um, and throughout the block competitions, one-on-one -on -one competitions between the Soviet athletes and Eastern Bloc athletes had sort of became a grounds for well, what the officials back in Moscow called anti-Soviet activity. Um, Soviet athletes were booed. They had things thrown at them, people shouting things like, Ivan, go home. Um, and I think that's a reaction to um, the Soviet military repression of the Hungarian revolution. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have some um, Soviet allies, particularly the People's Republic of China, um, the PRC, resentful of Khrushchev's idea of peaceful coexistence with the West. Um, and Mao starts to break away from Khrushchev, denouncing him as a revisionist, um, and then putting forth the PRC, Communist China, as the beacon of socialist revolution abroad um, and vying for the Soviet Union for leadership of, of the socialist wave. Um, and that's complicating their efforts to get the PRC recognized by the IOC. Yeah, it seemed like uh, every time these, these Soviet sports bureaucrats were attempting to, to, to promote the entry of Soviet athletes or, or, or the, the further establishment of Soviet bureaucrats within the IOC, they always had to deal with these concurrent moments of political tension. It, they almost line up. It, it seems like an, uh, part of me was wondering whether this was because there were really more hot moments in the cold war than, than we sometimes recognize and, and whether this was all just simmering in the background or, or was it that their timing was really bad? Um, <laughs> so I would, and we can talk about that more, I think, when we get to the uh, Olympics in Moscow in 1980, because that definitely seemed like some uh, poor timing in, in some ways. Uh, but I, I wonder if we could move on to the the uh, Brezhnev era and the early Brezhnev era. And in, here, in my reading, and tell me if I'm if I was doing a good job, but it seems like this is when the Soviet sportocrats really hit their peak during the Brezhnev era. This is when they have uh, the most um, the most clout within IOC and seemingly have uh, are having success in in their own internal Soviet sphere. And you kind of look at this as a way of understanding um, understanding this late Soviet or, or mid to late Soviet system and whether or not it's um, really as lethargic as 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 we understand it. And I, I wondered if you could if you could talk through that a little bit. Am I, am I reading it right? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, 
Brezhnev's coming to power in the Soviet Union, I think, was probably um, perhaps the most important moment for for the sports bureaucrats, because Brezhnev, unlike previous leaders, was really a sports fan, and he already was predisposed to to want the Soviet Union to host the Olympics. And so having that support at the highest office in the system was really important. Um, it's also during Brezhnev's, Brezhnev's tenure that detente between the U.S. and the Soviet Union um, comes into its fullest flowering um, with arms reduction treaties um, and bilateral negotiations between the two superpowers ratcheting down the tensions in the Cold War. Um, which made Soviet hosting of the games much more palatable, I think, especially for, for Westerners in, in the IOC. Um, it also, in terms of the bureaucratic apparatus, was kind of the heyday of the Soviet bureaucrat in many ways because Brezhnev was very... Um, he promoted this idea of stability of cadres, um, which essentially was giving lifetime tenure to bureaucrats within the system, um, sort of signaling that there weren't going to be any more purges of the bureaucratic apparatus. There weren't going to be any quote unquote harebrained schemes like Khrushchev had introduced in terms of reform. Um, and that's kind of seen as um, the beginnings of what's become known as um, stagnation in the late Soviet era. Um, but it also provided a lot of um, freedom within the bureaucratic apparatus for some a project like the Olympic Games to actually come to fruition. It gave a lot of latitude to the sports bureaucrats um, to do what they needed to do in order to get a successful bid together, to convince the international Olympic Committee to accept the bid, um, and then once the bid was accepted, to to get the lumbering um, system functioning enough to actually put the games together and and have them be successful, at least logistically. Yeah, so this is the time, this Brezhnev era, when the Soviet sports bureaucrats really decide um, we want to host the Olympics and we think we can, we think we can get uh, our, our central Soviet to agree with us that we should do this. So I'm wondering if you can uh, kind of unpack for us how they convince their internal, um, how they convince people in the Soviet union, Hey, this is something we should do. We should host the Olympics. What was in it for, for them and for the Soviet union, but then also how did they try to convince people, um, especially before this 1970 meeting, uh, that the Soviet Union is a place where we should have the Olympics? Right. So how do they try to convince the IOC? And are these messages fundamentally the same or are they working in two different registers? There is a lot of overlap of the message. Um, internally, it's all um, in keeping with the overall goal of participating in the, in the Olympics, um, using the Olympics as a place to display the excellence of Soviet athletes, to win medals, to catch up and overtake the West in terms of records. Um, and in terms of hosting the games, this would be a way for 
for a socialist nation to show what their system can do in terms of putting on such a big um, sporting competition in an intense international under intense international scrutiny. This is the way for the Soviet Union to show itself at its best to as big, as wide an international audience as possible. Um, for the IOC, convincing them in part um, was, first of all, they have to convince them that they logistically can do it. Um, yes, we have the sports facilities or we could build the sports facilities. Um, we've, we've hosted successful international sporting competitions in the past. And here's how those went. Um, we are committed to spreading Olympism and using the games as a way to celebrate the athlete and celebrate international sports. Um, and then of course they have to downplay the other part of it, which is we want to show the superiority of our socialist system. So they just kind of downplay that part of it. But the rest of it is, hey, we can put on a really exciting show of international sporting excellence. We have experience doing it. And if given the chance, we have the backing of our leadership. We have the financial stability to pull it off. And so they put together an initial bid and it fails. <laughs> Why does it fail? And, and how did that not kibosh the, the project right then? It seemed like they were able to bounce back really quickly. Um, I think there it really came down to timing. I think they didn't get the okay from the leadership um, in enough time to put together a really convincing bid. Um, and I think that's why it failed the first time. They kind of did it last minute. Um, the reason they were able to bounce back so quickly is because they were able to build upon what they had already put together for the previous bid and then just cross all the T's and dot all the I's and frankly schmooze all the IOC members, um, giving them many, many years to, to sort of build up support for the bid. Um, and so to me, it came, it came down to timing. Yeah. You, you used an interesting term, which I had never heard before about the kind of rushed nature of Soviet bureaucracy. Cause sometimes things take so long to decide that you then don't have time to really do the thing you wanted to do. Yeah. They have a wonderful uh, word, Stomoshina, a, um, which is this last minute production spurt. And so there's this, a long time of waiting and waiting and waiting, and then a fury flurry of activity to try to pull it off. But that wasn't what happened before the 1980 games, as you as you as you mentioned. Um, the these Soviet bureaucrats are really because they have so much time before the the nomination for those games. They uh, schmooze and wine and dine. I don't think there were any IOC members who didn't go to to Moscow on a junket. It seemed like. I, I think you're right. <laughs> but they they did other stuff too. How how did they make that 1980 bid more successful? I mean, they had this youth congress. Um, it seemed like an improved political situation in the West too. What are the factors that lead to the Moscow being chosen as a site for the 1980 games? Because probably if you, it seems like if you'd asked people ten years before they were chosen, it would have seemed pretty improbable. Um, I think you're right. Um. 
a lot of it had to do with the with the international situation and the reduction of tensions, detente, um, that helped a lot. I think there was also a sense that it was their turn um, because they had been so actively involved in the movement, even though they hadn't put forth a bid to host the games. Um, the success of Soviet athletes was also a big factor. I mean, they were such a dominant force in the competitions that a lot of people in the IOC thought, well, maybe it is their time to to put on the show for themselves. Um, and they had been paving the way for it um, for all of those years as well, um, drumming up support for other Soviet initiatives within the organization, um, building relationships with other IOC members, um, getting Andrianov on the executive board of the IOC was quite helpful because it gave him a lot more um, a lot more connections within the IOC leadership. And I think um, all of those things, sort of all the groundwork that they had been laying, um, now they were able to capitalize on it. So they, they win the Olympic bid. Moscow is going to host the 1980 Games. How do they prepare? What, what are the things that they need to do? Was Moscow already just a perfect Olympic site or was there a lot of work to be done? There was a lot of work to be done. Um, I just don't even know where to begin. <laughs> they had they had hosted international sporting competitions in the past. They had a big stadium, um, but it would it had been built in the 1950s, um, yeah, so it needed is, overhauling. Is this Luzhniki? Am I pronouncing that terribly? Yep, Luzhniki. Mm-hmm. What did they need to do there? Uh, well, they needed to expand the capacity of it so that it could host the the Olympics or the opening and closing ceremonies. Um, they also they had a big debate internally about whether to cover it or not. Um, and I think they finally decided a partial cover so that dignitaries could be protected from the elements, um, but it would be too expensive to make it all covered. Um, and besides that, they had to build hundreds of sports facilities for all of the events on the program, um, which was an amb- ambitious schedule. They, they planned for it to have the most events ever at the Olympics. So that meant a lot more sports facilities that needed to be either renovated or built new. Um, but their biggest stumbling block was, um, and this was also part of the bid process as well, one of the big stumbling blocks, but then um, actually preparing for it was being prepared to host that many foreign visitors at once. Um, they didn't have the hotel capacity. They didn't have restaurants. They didn't have currency exchange. All of these sorts of logistics had to be put in place so that they could have millions of, of international visitors um, come to the games and enjoy it. Yeah, one of the interesting things you you mentioned is that they were, they were these bureaucrats because they many of them had been abroad and they were so worldly in comparison to many people in the Soviet Union, they really realized that there was a kind of difference in service culture. And they were just concerned that maybe the Soviet Union uh, wouldn't be hospitable enough because it wasn't kind of natural uh, to this, to the Soviet citizens to, to, to be welcoming in the same way that maybe Western, Western Europeans would expect. And so it seemed really that they were drilling down into the fine uh, 
into the, the 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 large concerns like hey we need more stadiums but also in in the kind of fine concerns like okay well when when somebody's out at a restaurant or a hotel there's a certain level of of hospitality that's expected so they really were had a kind of totalizing concept and it seemed like for what the the games in Moscow should be like yeah absolutely um, they recruited thousands of young Soviets, um, especially young women, to be hostesses and guides to, you know, and they they had political education as part of their training, but also training in hospitality, smiling, um, being polite, um, language so that they could communicate with with visitors in their in their own language. And of course, um, as even as these sports bureaucrats are kind of planning this, this is the moment when they need to interact most with all of these other bureaucracies uh, in the Soviet Union. And, and some of them seem less um, less excited about the Moscow games than others. Like the security services are really worried about all these international visitors too, aren't they? Um, yes. Yes. For different reasons. Um, and, and that becomes another, another issue um, they want it to be welcoming. They want it to seem like a free atmosphere. But then the reality is that they're going to have a really big security presence at the games. Um, and part of that is necessary because the games had become um, so political and other Olympics um, had been the sites of of everything from protest to terrorist activity. And so um, it wasn't just the Soviet Union being closed off. It was it was a real, um, a real concern that people might try to make those games into some kind of political um, or even some kind of violent statement. And even kind of on the, on the local, uh, uh, one of the things that you bring up that I found very interesting, though not at all surprising, and not because it's the Soviet Union, but just because we see this again and again with the Olympics, was that the police, uh, well, they, they, they rounded up about 900 900 undesirable people and kind of force them out of town. Mm-hmm. Yep. To make it, um, make the city as, as pretty as possible. Um, and what they can't clean up and what they can't fix, they can just sort of shunt, shunt away. Um, residents of Moscow were also encouraged to, to leave town during the games, just um, in terms of capacity. Um, to make room for all of the visitors coming. Um, so it's partly removing undesirable elements, but also just a matter of practicality that Moscow could only support so many people at one time. Now, were, were uh, Muscovites really excited about the prospect of hosting the game? So not these sports bureaucrats, but just ordinary people? You know, it's hard for me to really speak to that Um because I didn't do a lot of interviews for this project. I didn't really, um, that wasn't one of my key questions, how the, how the people were receiving it. Um, what I can say is that they had this um, sport lotto um, thing where Soviet citizens would buy these lottery tickets and that would help fund construction for the games. And those are really popular. People bought um, millions of those. And so... I have to judge from that that there was a certain level of enthusiasm amongst um, at least the people of the Soviet Union. I'm sure for Muscovites themselves, 
there might have been some ambivalence in certain quarters. Um, they were probably excited um, that Moscow was chosen for the games, but also it would mean some inconvenience to their lives having such a big influx um, at the time. You know, it's probably similar to to any city hosting the games. There's always um, enthusiasm for it, city pride, national pride, but then also concerns about um, the expense of it. How much is this going to take away from from our daily lives? Um, how much is it going to be a distraction? Um, kind of papering over some of the real problems in our society. So the the games happen, obviously, um, but there's some other important events going on at the same time, a, a massive boycott. I wondered if you could explain how this boycott emerges, how these Soviet uh, bureaucrats respond to it, and then maybe take on the question of, the the success of the games was this what these bureaucrats hoped for or did they um was this a kind of heroic failure good question um i'll start with the easy part the boycott part um which is kind of interesting because even before afghanistan was even on the radar there was talk of boycott i mean from the initial bid there were certain certain sectors wanting to boycott on human rights grounds because of the repressive system, um, Jewish organizations because of the Soviet stance on Israel, and also they're preventing um, Jewish Soviet citizens from immigrating to Israel. Um, there were Boycott had become a sort of key tool um, in the arsenal of people who wanted to bring attention to certain um, aspects and problems of society. Um, African nations threatened to boycott um, the Montreal Games. In fact, many of them did because of um, relationships between Commonwealth teams and um, South Africa. Um, there was threats of boycotts from the Middle East, from Arab nations of the Middle East because of Israel's being included. And then, of course, there's threats of boycott if Israel was not included from other sectors. And so they had been, they spent a lot of time trying to diffuse all of these other situations. And then um, the Soviet troops are sent into Afghanistan and that initiates the big boycott of Western nations um, in response to that um, invasion. Um, and by that point, they, they had A, run out of time and B, really, as much as they tried to exert influence um, on the leadership in terms of Afghanistan, they really, I think it really shows the limits of how, how far sports can re really reduce tensions um, politically and militarily. Yeah, it seems like um, in some ways monumentally bad timing for them. And I was wondering when I was reading how cynical this Western response was. Uh, to to um, you know the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, but then also reading um, the in the some of the quotes that you have about um, the Soviet sports bureaucrats talking about their country being a peace loving country during the opening ceremonies as they've in, just invaded Afghanistan. So um, I, I do wonder then with this boycott, and it was fifty countries that boycotted, or am I? 
60 countries. Then how, how did these bureaucrats res- respond to this once it had already happened? The games are on, the boycott is on. Were they just, did they have a sense of defeat? Did they feel um, like, oh no, the games are still a success because of course the Soviet Union cleans up in the medals? What, what, was, their, what was their takeaway from, from the 1980 Olympics? Um, officially, it was, it was a success. Um, many new nations competed for the first time. Um, more women participated than ever before. Um, they did really clean up in the medal count, which is always um, pretty much at the core of any evaluation of the Olympic Games um, in official Soviet circles. Um, and any... And, I mean, essentially, they just painted themselves as taking the high ground. Um, Yes, these countries boycotted, but that's just them bringing politics into the Olympics. And we're going to rise above that and put on um, the most exciting spectacle that we can. Um, And they were supported in that in many ways by the IOC itself. I think the IOC um, really gets exposed when these kinds of things happen um, whenever there's talk of boycott, um, whenever there's some kind of political protest at the games, they always take the stance of, well, the, the Olympics are supposed to be apolitical. And so these people are, are just trying to demean what for many people in the IOC was almost a sacred um, religion of Olympism um, and so they tended to side with the with the organizers, and they did that in 1980. They they thought it was well organized. They thought the pageantry and spectacle were exciting, um, but not too exciting. It's another thing that I think comes out of all this is that um, both the Soviet leadership and the Soviet administrators and the International Olympic Committee members really really kind of like a very orderly. Um, sort of show. They like the ritual. They like the protocol. Um, they like the very orderly, organized pageantry of it all. Um, and they got that in 1980. And for the most part, they were happy about it. Of course, it was disappointing um, on the part of the bureaucrats and organizers um, that it wasn't as big as it was supposed to be. And the, the boycott certainly marred that part of it. Um, but it really sort of cemented their relationship with the IOC in many ways. I, I have to say, I really, I really enjoyed um, reading this book, Jennifer. And I, um, I, I wanted to ask a, a practical question, if, if I may, to one thing I noticed um, and I, I, I have to admit, I have the same problem myself. But one thing I noticed in, in your work was how many different archives you had to visit. And it was very impressive, uh, just the, the number, but also the breadth of, of archives in, in, uh, around the world, in the United States and Switzerland and, and in the Soviet Union. So I wonder if you could uh, just, uh, if anybody who's listening is, is, is working on a similarly uh, in some ways, um, difficult in terms of archives projects. If you had any advice for them, I think uh, I think I, I'd appreciate to hear it at any rate. Um, sure, I, I did visit a lot of archives. Um, 
probably the most challenging ones were the were the Russian archives, um, not the archives themselves, um, but just getting to Russia is not easy. Um, it requires an expensive visa um, and a very drawn out and complicated application process. And then once you're there, you have to have your you have to fill out another, go through another process to to register your visa. Um, you have to bring letters of support from your institution to gain access to the archives. Um, once in, though, the the staff at the archives are very professional and very helpful. Um, and so once you're in, it's not so much a problem as long as you don't mind spending many hours a day poring over lots of, um, and at times pretty boring, um, minutes from meetings and reports. Um, the, the International Olympic Committee archives at the Olympic Studies Center in Lausanne are amazing. Um, the staff there is incredible. Lausanne itself is just a fantastic city. Um, so that was really a joy to get to go and work there. Um, though it can be expensive, um, living in Lausanne for extended period of time. Um, but they're very helpful. There's also a, um, a scholarship available, a grant from the Olympic Studies Center. So if there are any PhD students out there who want to do an Olympic project, they should, they should check that out because they might be able to get funding to, to travel to Lausanne and other places um, through the Olympic Studies Center. Good. That's... Definitely good advice, because <laughs> I, I, as I understand, it is quite expensive there. I, I, I want to thank you, uh, Jennifer, for joining us again. Um, fascinating, fascinating book. Uh, people who are interested not only in sport in the Soviet Union, but also uh, bureaucracy in, in, in a bureaucratic history would should pick this up. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Um, yes, I, I've really gotten, and this kind of stemmed from, from the book, especially the lead up to the 1980 games as they were trying to get as many countries into the movement as possible. I got really fascinated by um, the approach to attracting client states in the what was known at the time as the third world, uh, particular countries, particularly countries in Africa, um, and I, I would like to look more at both how the Soviet Union was using sport to attract to attract client states, um, doing things like sending coaches over there, bringing bringing athletes and coaches to the Soviet Union to study, um, building stadiums, providing funding for sports facilities, all of those kinds of things. Um, and I'm really interested, as I've been looking at that, I found that a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries were also doing similar things um, in some ways as part of an overall um, socialist front to try to build up support around the world, but also in some ways exerting some um, autonomy and some um, distance between them and the Soviet Union and sort of exerting, for instance, Czechoslovakian power and reputation abroad or the German Democratic Republic was also using sport as well as other diplomatic means to try to gain its own sort of circle of, of client states and allies abroad. And so I'd really like to look more at that 
sort of interplay between the Soviet Union, its Eastern European allies, and and third world countries, developing countries, um, and how that whole dynamic sort of played out, especially by the by the seventies and eighties. I have to tell you, I'm already excited about this book. <laughs> so you'll have to let me know, or I'll keep an eye out uh, for when it comes out. Um, thank you all for listening. We've been here with with Jennifer Parks, the author of The Olympic Games, The Soviet Sports Bureaucracy in the Cold War, Red Sport, Red Tape. I encourage everyone to go pick it up. It's great if you're interested in the Soviet Union and sports in the Soviet Union, sports bureaucracy, but also just if you're more generally interested in the Olympic movement um, and you want to know more about how the IOC is really working, this is a, a great book for you. Uh, thank you all for joining me, Keith Rathbone, and thank you all for listening. Have a great day.